All right, well, open up in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 9. 1 Corinthians 9. We're not yet in Mark. We're going to hit Mark next Sunday. We're going to be back in it next week. We're still kind of in the, hey, it's a new year. Let's think about this year as a fresh gift from God and how we can seek to grow in 2021. And I want to remind you, as we start out this sermon, as we jump into a text that calls us to grace-driven effort, that calls us to run a race, I want to remind you this, that salvation is all of grace, not works. No one will get into heaven and boast there. No one will get to heaven and say, I'm here because of the things that I have done, because of the decisions that I have made, because of the works that I have done, the deeds that I have done. No one will get there and say that because they will see with utmost clarity in that day that it was all grace, beginning to end, that we were chosen by God from before the foundation of the world, that we were regenerated by the Spirit, that we're granted the gift of repentance and faith, that He then indwelt us by His Spirit. He enabled us to walk in obedience to Him. And by the time we're home to heaven, we will say it was grace, it was all grace, it was, it was God's work, it was not my own. We will take no credit. We will boast in the Lord and the Lord alone. And so if you want to be saved, if you're not yet a Christian and you're joining us this morning, uh, there's a real sense that you don't need to do anything in terms of adding your works to salvation. You need to confess that you can do nothing to earn it, that you are nothing, that you have sinned and deserve God's wrath, but that God right now offers you grace, that it can be fully and completely yours if you turn away from all other hopes and look to Him. Look at what Christ did in his perfect life, in his substitutionary death, in his resurrection, and his current uh, sitting at the right hand of the throne on high, ready to receive anyone who comes to him. If you're not a Christian, if you're not yet saved, if you're not yet forgiven, there's grace for you. And you can come home to experience the forgiveness of God and the embrace of Christ, and, and you can start a whole new life, a whole new direction of your life. And what you'll begin to see, if that's what you do, and what many of us Christians know as we've been following the Lord, that although salvation is not by works, it produces works. No one will get to heaven because of their works, but they won't get to heaven without them. In other words, when God saves someone, He transforms them into people who long for God and His glory, desire to obey His Word, and the fruit begins to show in their life. And this is why Jesus talks about you know the tree by its fruit. There's evidence of salvation in the behavior and the attitudes of a life. That works are never the reason we get into heaven, but if we've been saved, there is a transformation that takes place that now we desire to submit our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ and walk in obedience. And so now we give our lives to grace-driven obedience. We give our lives to pursue holiness, righteousness, not as an attempt to earn salvation, but because we've been given salvation freely and now we love the Lord, and we want to honor Him with everything we've got. And so it's, it's, it's a rest in grace in one sense. We, we live resting in grace, and yet the rest is not idle. Right? The, the rest is not lazy. The, the rest of the soul actually results in a pursuit of holiness and righteousness and godliness in our lives. Think about the different ways the Scriptures talk about this. Philippians chapter 2 mentions we are to work out our own salvation. Uh, Hebrews 12, 14 says, strive for holiness. 1 Timothy 4, verse 5 says, train yourself for godliness. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5 says, make every effort as you pursue the Lord. 2 Peter 3, 18, but grow 
in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Do you see these verbs? Strive. Grow. Train. There's all these, these words that are action verbs that to be saved doesn't put you in this position where you go, all right, I got my ticket in. I'm good. Now I can coast. Coasting is never meant to be part of the Christian life. Normal Christianity, and this is what we're going to see in our text, First uh, Corinthians 9, 24 to, 7, or 24 to 27. Normal Christianity is Olympic in the sense that it requires hard work, devotion, commitment, agonizing pursuit, toil. It is stretching. It is challenging. And it is all of grace. And it is the highest privilege. And so I want us to look at a text this morning that shows us some of these features of the Christian life that I think are really important for running into 2021 this year. We're going to hit a new year. This new year is going to have challenges, right? Uh, the one thing we know for sure is that 2021 will be hard. Let's just, every new year, let's, let's not act like something fundamentally changes from one year to the next. It will be hard. Life is hard. We are in a fallen world and we are sinners. And so there's difficulty that stands before us. And what we cannot do is sit back and point our finger at this year and go, oh, this year is so difficult. All these circumstances are so hard. And basically excuse ourselves from pursuing the Lord in 2021. We want to say, Lord, what do you have for me this year? Whatever you throw at me under your sovereign hand, uh, by providence, you put into my life, I want to grow. And so we want to look at our text and be encouraged to grow in 2021. So we're in 1 Corinthians 9. Let me read it to you. Do you not know, verse 24, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize so run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body. And I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified we're going to look at this i'm going to point out five words that summarize some of the themes of this text five words that encapsulate the ideas five words that kind of become for us a formula that if we have these in our life as we pursue christ we will be running the race well the way that god has called us to run. We can pin these words on our refrigerator this year or put them on our bathroom mirror and we could remind ourselves as we live each day that these are important, these are urgent for us to live faithfully the way God intends for us to live. And so I want to first start there in verse 24 where he says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run but only one receive the prize so run that you may obtain it. Here's our first word. Our first word is aspiration. Why does he ask the question? Why does he ask this rhetorical question? Don't you know you're in a, you're in a race? Uh, uh, that, that there's runners running and, and you gotta, you got to run for the prize? Don't you understand? And actually, if you look at that word, in a race, there's different translations that translate that differently. Um, in the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, uh, the translation says something along the lines of, do you not know that in a stadium, the word is actually rooted in that word stadium, and it's the idea that, that, that Paul is painting this picture of this great grand stadium. It's packed with people. Remember that when stadiums used to be packed with people? It's a, it's a long distant memory I have. It might not even be true, but uh, he, he's painting this picture. There's a stadium full of people, and there's runners on the track. And have you ever watched those runners on the track? They sit, start going, and one of them goes, yeah, I'm not really interested in winning. Like, I really like uh, this, this idea of going out for a jog, but the winning thing, nah, I'm not really into it. Uh, if you've ever watched the Olympics, these guys are going all out. Everything's on the table. They're working hard. But here, 
Paul has to paint this picture for them because the Corinthians, who were kind of a dysfunctional church, needed to remember that life is like a race. Life is the Christian life to walk faithfully, to run faithfully as a believer, is to think of your life as a race, but not just as a race that you are participating in. Listen, a race that you ought to try to win at. The way you run ought to be similar to how an Olympic athlete who is running his race, all that he puts into it, all the efforts that go into all the training ought to be a parallel to the way you live your Christian life. I think there's a lot of Christians who don't look at life as a race. There's, there's other ways. You, you look at life as a stroll where you're just kind of enjoying the things that come your way or you look at life like a sightseeing tour. I'm here to get all the good sights and to enjoy all the good things. There's no eagerness to necessarily be disciplined. There's no compulsion to leave your comfort zone. There's a stubborn resistance to anything that feels uncomfortable. But Paul is trying to reshape the Corinthians here, and he's trying to reshape our lives, and he wants us to think about our lives with aspiration. He wants you to think about your life this way. Run to win. Run not to get that participation trophy. Just, you know, I participated. Not just to get the T-shirt. I ran the race. You run to win in 2021. That means have aspirations in your life. Uh, don't be the runner who has no aspirations to grow. I remember at an old church when I was down in Fallbrook, we had this guy join our church, and he was fresh out of prison. And he had been in prison for a number of years. And he came to our church freshly converted. He had gotten saved in prison, and he had a Bible. It was the only book he had, and he had it in the KJV, the King James Version, and he devoured it. He would read it over and over again, day and night, and began a little Bible study in his cell. And after five years, I believe it was, him, he was finally released. He shows up to our church, and this guy is hungry to know the Lord and to know his word. His life had been radically transformed. And one of the things I remember of being in that church, it was, it was a healthy church. There was areas that needed to grow. And this was one of them, that when he came to our church, it was kind of, it was kind of strange that he wanted to grow that bad. It was a little bit odd. Like he was the odd person out for wanting to ask these questions and have his uh, get answered. That he was the one hungry to read good books that could guide him. It was a little bit, everyone's like, oh, what's going on with him? As if wanting to grow was weird. <laughs> you ever been in a group of people for whom spiritual growth is really not an aspiration? To really be hungry to grow is strange, odd. There's no aspiration. There's no longing there's nothing put forth in terms of effort to learn and to grow and to be more faithful. Shouldn't it, on the other hand, church, be the norm that we are hungry to learn, that we have aspirations to run well, that we want, to, we want help running well, we want to run the best race we could possibly run for the glory of God and for the love of neighbor? See, run that you might win. Have holy aspirations. And so I ask you, as you thought about what you're going to do this year, as you made plans for 2021, are there holy aspirations that you have? Holy longings, holy ambitions that you, as you reflect on who God is and who you are and what he's called you to be, you say, I'm, I'm not content to walk the race. I'm not content to make this a stroll. I'm in it to win it. And so I have these aspirations. I want to run well. Paul says that's normal Christianity. That's not extraordinary, super Christian activity. That's normal Christianity. He's calling all of these Christians in Corinth to live this way. Here's a second word. You see it 
in verse 25, the text says, Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. The word is self-control. Yeah, I get it's two words, but there's a dash in the middle, so it counts as one. Self-control. I want you to look at the text because you've got to see the connection here. He says in the end of verse 24, So run that you may obtain it. What is it? It's the prize. And then he says, Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. Okay, so I want to run. How do I do that, Paul? Here's the answer Paul gives. You've got to be like an athlete who exercises self-control. The idea of self-control is is that of keeping your heart in check, subdued under the Word of God, to keep your emotions subdued under truth. It is to lasso in and pull in your thought life. It is to know how to suppress your unhelpful impulses. It is to know how to squelch your diverting desires so that you can live in obedience to what God has called you to do even when there are times in your life you want to go in other directions you got to exercise self-control i think there's some critical pieces for this so i'm going to give you four ways to kind of start practicing self-control and we're going to see this they're derived from the text here number one take responsibility self-control means first take responsibility for your life don't point at the all the circumstances going on outside your life and say, well, that's why I didn't do this, and this is why I don't really do this, and well, it's because of that person that I'm unable to do this. No, no, no. Self-control is for every Christian. That's why he says every athlete does this. Every athlete exercises self-control. The parallel that he's meaning to push on his listeners is this. Every Christian does this. Everyone running the race does this. If you want to be a faithful Christian, Understand you are called to live a life of self-control. So we're going we're gonna to start making a formula here. Remember, first, it's this aspiration. And so aspiration without anything else is just fantasy. You have these great aspirations to run well. You also need self-control. Aspiration plus self-control. But that's not going to be the end of this. We're going to see more. Take responsibility. Secondly, under the realm of self-control you need to examine every area of your life if you want to have self-control. You first say, I'm responsible to run this race. I need to exercise self-control. It is my responsibility. But then you also say, I need to look at every area of my life and subdue it to the Word of God. Look at what he says there in the text. Where does the athlete exercise self-control? In all things. Uh, I read an article about how Olympians train. You know, Forbes magazine put together a few years ago this thing. is called Tra- How to Train Like an Olympian. What we see in the Olympics, you know, it happens every four years. We watch it. It's a few hours, and then we go on our day, and we forget about it. Well, what we don't realize sometimes is that these individuals who are training to be Olympic athletes are training nonstop. It takes several years for them to be Olympic caliber athletes. And you better believe that training to become an Olympian involves more than what they're doing on the track, right? If you're an athlete, you know this, that what you do off the track in, impacts what you're gonna, how you're going to perform when you're on the track. Uh, they ha- Olympic athletes have to exercise self-control in every area of their life. In other words, For them to be a successful Olympic athlete, they need a complete, whole-style life change. Everything changes. Eating habits change. Sleeping habits change. Relationships change. Everything becomes orbiting around the great goal of earning that gold. They will hire teams that will be fully dedicated for them to stay on track. They'll get a nutritionist, make sure they eat well. They'll get an exercise physiologist that helps them uh, make sure their bodies are doing the right functions, a sports medicine coach, everyone giving these different inputs to make sure they're doing it all right. In other words, for them to perform well, that little blip that we watch over the summer or the Winter Olympics, all their lives and the years of their training, every single aspect of their lives is subject to scrutiny. 
They're going to do everything they can to submit themselves to self-control. Why? So that they can win the prize. If you want to be self-controlled, here's what you need to understand. One, you've got to understand you're responsible. And secondly, all the areas of your life need to undergo the scrutiny of the Word of God. You've got to subject all of it to self-control. You say, what does that mean practically? You've got to examine everything. Uh, you say you want to be a good Bible reader in 2021. Well, look at your sleeping habits. It's all related. You say you want to be a faithful church attendance. Look at the way your relationships are. You say you want to be better at memorizing Scripture. Well, consider what are the things you're watching all day online. I mean, think about it. Every, your life is like an ecosystem. All of it needs to be subject. And if you just try to change one aspect of your life, it's like a race, uh, a guy running a race who says, I'm going to be really focused when I'm on that track. I'm going to be really disciplined to run well. But in between races, he's doing whatever he wants. He's eating whatever he wants. He's watching whatever he wants. He's wasting time. All our lives, if we're going to be self-controlled, need to be subject to scrutiny. They need to be subdued under the great purpose of running this race well. So we take responsibility. We examine every area of our life. And third, self-control starts in your mind. Go to 1 Peter chapter 3. Or sorry, chapter 1, verse 13. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Peter is addressing the idea of self-control. And he says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I love the imagery. He, he, he's talking about uh, preparing your minds for action. If you have an ESV, you got a little note there. This is 1 Peter 1.13. 1 Peter 1.13, he says, prepare your minds for action. There's a little one and at the bottom, it shows you what the Greek literal translation would be. It says, girding up the loins of your mind. What, was, what in the world does that mean? Girding up the loins of your mind. And what, here's what this means. It's the idea of girding your loins was like if you had a big flowy tunic on, which is what first century soldiers would have worn around. If they were uh, having to prepare for a battle or prepare to run a race, they would get their flowy garment and they would get their belt out, they'd tuck it in, every loose end would be tucked in. Everything would be put in, so they're not trying to run and tripping over themselves, they're not trying to fight and running into their own clothing. They would tuck it in. And this is what he's saying, do this in your mind. Get your mind under control. Uh, uh, gird up the loins of your mind, take the belt of your mind, and wrap up and collect all the thoughts and submit them to the truth, and set them to focus on what he says here, set your hope fully in the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. If you want to be self-controlled, guess where you start? You start in your mind. You start with your thoughts. You start with uh, your internal battle of the mind. This is where it all begins. 1 Peter 4, 7 says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled, and sober-minded. Those two things go together. If you want to be self-controlled, be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. You need aspiration to run the race. So you say, okay, I'm going to have self-control. And if you want self-control, you're going to have to win the battle of your mind. Because every big failure starts in the mind. Every big diversion Every moral compromise starts in your mind. Every messy divorce started as an idea. Every adultery started as a thought. Every embezzlement in a company began with a spark in the mind before it ever translated into action. And if we want to live self-controlled lives, we must lasso in the thoughts of our mind, subdue them to the truth. You say, all right, well, how do I do that? My, my thoughts are like cats. They're not obedient. They go in every which direction. I can't herd them. Have you ever felt this way about your mind? That as soon as you start to fight this battle, you realize how utterly hopeless it is to subdue your thoughts, to focus them. So here's our fourth point for self-control. There's a kind of purge that needs to happen in your mind. Uh, I have some friends 
and family who have done a, a diet that kind of requires a 30-day purge. And they start with these 30 days where they eat nothing junk, nothing of any junk food. They only eat the super healthy diet. At the end of it, they feel very healthy. Well, this is the kind of thing that you need to do in your mind, except for it's not 30 days, it's all the time. Here's what I mean. You want to get control of your life, and you want self-control that engages in the mind. You have to remove the filthy, the worldly, the ungodly things in your mind, and you need to replace them with godly, pure thoughts. I'll put it to you this way. This is a precious truth. You should write this down and reflect on this later today. Maybe talk about it with someone. This is a precious truth I think a lot of Christians don't quite get when they're trying to put self-control in their lives. Here's it is. Ready? Your thoughts cannot be eliminated. They must be replaced. Think about this. Your thoughts, if you want to have self-controlled thoughts, your thoughts cannot be eliminated. They must be replaced. In other words, if you want to start thinking in a self-controlled way, you don't just grin and bear it and try really hard to remove all the bad thoughts from your mind. You will not be able to do it. Let me give you an example. Nobody, nobody right now, I don't want anybody to think of a purple elephant. Stop thinking of a purple elephant. Don't do it. How many of you are thinking about a purple elephant? All of you are. Because the moment you try to just eliminate a thought, you're only thinking about that thing. How do you stop thinking about it? You get your mind something else, something true. And this is, in fact, the biblical way of sanctification. It is removal and replacing. It is putting off and putting on. Listen to Philippians 4, 8, and 9. You want self-control in your mind? Philippians 4, 8, and 9. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellent, think about these things. In other words, replace the, the filthy thoughts, replace the distracted thoughts with pure and honorable and lovely and true things. I think there are a lot of Christians who complain about their lack of ability to control their mind. They, they don't have that self-control and they go, man, I have a hard time reading my Bible. I have a hard time memorizing Scripture. I have a hard time meditating on truth. I have a really hard time when it comes to controlling my thoughts and I have a really hard time reading and reflecting on God's truth that's given to us from the Word of God. But at the same time, they're filling their mind with all kinds of things that are diverting their thoughts from those things. Their, their minds are set on their Instagram feed constantly. The Twitter feed is going into their mind. They're on Facebook and Snapchat and they're amusing themselves in every free time with YouTube videos or Netflix at night. And they wonder why self-control is so difficult. It's because all the things that are flowing into their minds are not helping them focus on that which is right and good and honorable and true. Now listen, we're not legalistic against those things. You are free in Christ to enjoy those things in moderation and according to what the Bible teaches we can. But the moment we start complaining about our inability to focus, we need to then evaluate, well, what am I allowing in? What am I allowing in? You can envision your mind like a wash. I remember I had, we had a wash by near I grew up, and that wash was gross. When it wasn't raining, there'd be old bogs, and, and we used to actually go try to catch frogs in there, and there was this nasty kind of stuff growing in there, smelled really bad, perfect place for a little boy to go play. And I was down there, and, and I'd spend hours down there at this wash, and then a rain would come. And the rain would come in full, and it would start rushing the water right down that wash, and all the gross stuff would be washed away. It would be pushed out, and you'd have this more pure stream of rainwater flooding this area and pushing aside all the filth. Your mind is like that wash. And if you don't have the pure rainwater of the Word of God to flow through, guess what? You're going to have this kind of bog in your brain that ends up being so, making it so difficult for you to focus on what's good and right and true. So here's what you need, is to not just try to eliminate the bad in your mind, but to replace it with the good. 
to replace it with the pure, fresh truth. If you want self-control, you take responsibility, you start in your mind, and then you fill your mind, you purge your mind of all the filth, and you replace it with the goodness. I know of some ladies in our church who are just about finished memorizing the entire book of Philippians. How about that flowing through your mind? During 2020, I'd like to have those things running through my mind, right? When you're going through a hard year. In 2021, what will be flowing through your mind? I know some who have committed to memorize Romans 8. I know another group of people who have committed to memorize the Sermon on the Mount. I know there's a men's equipping group that's reading through a bunch of Scripture. And let me encourage all of you that are doing those things. Amen. This is the type of thing we need to commit to to make sure our minds are filled with truth so we can actually be self-controlled. And let me ask you, what are you going to do to feed your mind in 2021 so you can live a self-controlled life, so your mind can be self-controlled, so you can run the race? You're not just exercising self-control for no reason. You're exercising self-control so you can run the race God has put you in. Here's a third word. That was all under self-control. Okay? <laughs> Here's our third word. Perspective. Go back to 1 Corinthians 9. The, the grammar here is very interesting. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. And now he explains further the motives for that person who's exercising self-control. He says they do it to receive a perishable wreath. What do they do? They exercise self-control. Okay, why? To get a reward. We, an imperishable. Okay, so you're wondering to yourself, okay, I want to be self-controlled, but man, that's hard. Man, that is really hard. I, I, in fact, I've tried in years past to be self-controlled, and every time I end up fizzling out, and I get distracted, and I, 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 I fumble it, and I just don't make any changes. Well, this is gold for us because it actually shows you the motive to keep you running the race that has self-control. Did you catch it? What's the motive? What's the right biblical motive, according to the end of verse 25, that motivates your self-control? Did you catch it? It's the prize. They run or they exercise self-control. Why? Because there's a prize. Because there's a wreath. There's a crown. He's describing that, that wreath you've seen in old Roman pictures that's like the plants, and they put it on the victor's head as a sign that they won. Here, he's saying, Christian, you need to have aspirations. you got to want to run. you got to have self-control so that you could run this race. But in order to have self-control, you need to have perspective. You need to have in front of you the prize. You need to see it. You need to long for it. You need to understand that it is worth it. Self-control can become drudgery if you, you don't have the prize. Some of you might be trying to exercise self-control, but you don't have a prize that's before your mind. You're trying to exercise self-control, but you don't have the perspective. And so you're like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to really try really hard. But, but why? If there's no goal, it will fizzle out. We will always drift toward empty, undisciplined habits unless we keep before us the idea that it's all worth it because God has said there's a reward for those who seek him. So if you want to maintain uh, discipline, what do you do? You maintain perspective. You keep your eyes on the prize. And this is where the church often comes in handy. We need each other in this. You're going to be running that race, and you're going to be huffing and puffing and heaving, and you're going to go, I don't know if I can take another step. You're going to be keeling over, and your head's going to be down, and you're thinking, this is just too hard. I can't remain self-disciplined anymore. Uh, it's just a, it's a lot of strain, and, and you feel yourself beginning to drift. And you know what you need? You need that, that brother, you need that sister to come along. He puts his hand around your shoulder, and he says, hey, lift your head. Look at the prize, remember? Look at the prize. The Lord has said that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. The Lord has said that we run to win a prize. In other words, the Lord makes it all worth it in the end. And so we lift our eyes and we say, no, let's keep running. Maintain that discipline. Don't give up. 
Keep pursuing with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength because it's all worth it in the end. There's a story that you probably have heard. The story of Odysseus and the sirens. It's the story where he's on that ship and they're passing the, the island of the sirens. If you're familiar with this Greek mythology, the sirens sing this song and it's so beautiful and it's so compelling that all the sailors that pass by, they hear the siren song and they're enchanted by it and they get drawn in and what happens, the sirens are actually monsters and they eat them. And so Odysseus is passing through and uh, the, he's warned about these creatures He's warned and he's given uh, the, this beeswax and he's instructed, get your crew, put the beeswax in your ears so you can't hear their song. Because if you hear their song, you're going to be drawn in. But Odysseus wants to hear the song. He wants to hear the song and he wants to survive at the same time. And so what he does is he instructs his crew to tie him to the post. Uh, tie him up, all, his hands to the post, his feet to the post, his whole body is tied to this post. The rest of the crew, they plug their ears as they pass through the island of the sirens. And what immediately begins happening as the sounds come and the song comes, the crew doesn't hear any of it because their ears are plugged, but there Odysseus hears it and the enchantment falls on him. And he starts begging his crew, let me go, let me go, set me free. I I need to go see the sirens. I need to go be with them. The song has absolutely got a hold of his heart. And he's screaming at his crew. He's bloodying his wrists, trying to get free. He's shaking violently, anything to get free. And finally he passes through and he's barely made it. And his crew finally undoes him and he survives with his life. Now I think a lot of Christians think of self-discipline and self-control like Odysseus tied to a post. You just got to bear it. There's all kinds of good things out there. You just got to say no. You just got to tie yourself up. You just got to do anything you can to make sure you don't fall for it. And it's just this miserable experience. All of life is just this miserable experience of saying no to these pleasures. Because God has said that I'm not supposed to have them, so I won't. Some people think of self-discipline that way. But imagine this, a different scenario. This is not how the story goes, but I want you to imagine, what if Odysseus' crew was also an orchestra? And imagine if Odysseus said this, I want you as we pass through the island of the sirens to play something more beautiful. Play the songs of our homeland. Play it louder than the sound of the sirens. Play it beautifully. Drown them out. And so when we pass through, we will pass through and we will be able to resist because we are hearing something more beautiful and more glorious and more valuable and we will be able to enjoy our passage through this dangerous place. That is a more faithful picture of what self-discipline and self-control is like. Because here's what Paul is saying. If you want to be disciplined, if you want to have self-control, sing the songs of heaven. Remember in your mind the glories of the reward. Remember in your heart that there's a reward. And focus on that. Think about that. Reflect on that. And that will motivate you to say no to these trivial earthly pleasures that do not satisfy. The way you can say no to a bologna sandwich when you're hungry is to know that there's a sizzling steak waiting for you. And if you just wait, it's all yours. Self-control is not just primarily and ultimately and fundamentally, eternal self-denial. There is so much joy in saying no to the trivialities of the world and saying yes to Christ and believing Him and looking forward to the reward that He gives to those who earnestly seek Him. And so have perspective. How will you in 2021 gain perspective? How will you make sure that heaven is on the mind? That the reward is before your eyes. How will you remember that life is short and eternity is long and so you can live for that world, not this one? Those are big questions. Think about them. Here's our fourth word. Focus. Focus. Verse 26. I do not run aimlessly. 
I don't run without focus. I run with aim. I do not run aimlessly, but I do, or I do not box as one beating the air. Imagine someone at the starting line, and the sound goes, and the runners take off, and this guy's going straight ahead, aimed at his goal, and this guy's going straight ahead, aimed at the finish line, and this guy's going over here, running off the track. You say, where's he going? What's he doing? Clearly doesn't understand the nature of this race. You see, you got to live your life with purpose and with focus and with aim. Now, let me unpack this because we need a little context to understand, well, what it is. What is it to have focus? What is our focus to be? What is the aim for which we live? And the context is key. Look at chapter 9, verse 12. Paul says, referring to himself and the apostles, nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. The way Paul lives is so as to not hinder anyone from hearing the gospel? Look at verse 16. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. What is Paul's aim? I'm in it to preach Christ. That's why I'm here. That's what I live for. That's what I'm doing while I got these years on planet Earth. I'm living for Christ and His purposes, for the glory of God and the mission of the church. Look at verse 23. This is right before our section. He says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel. All my self-denial, all the giving up of things for the sake of others to demonstrate love, I do it all that they might know the gospel, that they might share in its blessings and I share with them. Everything focused on the bullseye of making Christ known. And making his gospel clear, can I ask you this question? Can you say with all sincerity, I am here in this community for such a time as this. I am here for Christ and his gospel. That's why I live. That's why I go to work. That's why I parent my kids the way I do. That's why I show up every Sunday. I'm not in it for the career. I'm not in it for the money. I'm not in it for the accolades. I'm not in it for popularity. I'm not in it for influence. I'm not in this life to just get comfort and convenience. I'm here on planet Earth for one primary thing, and that is to glorify God by making His Son known. I'm here for Christ and the gospel. That's why I'm here. And everything I do falls under that rubric for Christ, for the church, for the gospel. This must be our aim. You live for anything else, and you waste your life. John Piper's story at the beginning of his book, Don't Waste Your Life, has always gripped me. It's always kind of stuck with me. He, he describes a picture of an old man who was hardened, and for years the church had been praying for him. And he writes this. Piper writes, he was hard and resistant. But this time, for some reason, he showed up when my father was preaching. At the end of the service, during a hymn, to everyone's amazement, he came up, he took my father's hand, and God opened his heart to the gospel of Christ. And he was saved from his sins and given eternal life. Listen to this. But that did not stop him from sobbing and saying as tears ran down his wrinkled face, I've wasted it. I've wasted it god forbid that you come to the end of your life and there are tears rolling down your old wrinkled face and you're saying i've wasted it i've lived for myself i've lived for my money i've lived for this world and it's all passing away instead what paul is saying live with aim the one aim to make christ known to glorify God in the mission of His church, to make disciples of all nations. Live that way. And if you don't live that way, it's like you're boxing, like one beat in the air. You're doing a lot of work and you're getting nowhere. You're doing a lot of work and making no progress. So here's our formula so far. You've got to have aspiration to run this race. You've got to have self-control to, to guide your aspirations. You've got to have perspective 
that enables you to keep a heart of self-control. And all these things are worthless if you're heading the wrong direction. So you need aim. You need focus on your mission, the glory of God, and the advance of the gospel. And here's our last word. The word is discipline. Verse 27, I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. The word literally for discipline in Greek could be translated beat. It's actually a word connected with the previous idea of boxing. It actually also is translated in other places to give something a black eye. He's saying, I beat up my body. Some translations actually say it that way. I beat my body, I beat it up, I give it a black eye. And then that little phrase, and keep it under control, you see that? The, it's, it's all one Greek word. The Greek word is doulagageo, from the word doulos. And some of you might recognize that word. That word doulos means slave. What he's saying is, I beat up my body and I enslave it. I make it a slave. I own my body so that it will do what I want it to do. I keep it under control so I don't disqualify myself. Here's what he means. Listen to this, church. Your body has appetites, impulses, cravings, desires. They, they, they could be desires for sleep, for food, for sugar, for chocolate, for soda, for sex, for alcohol, for entertainment, for drugs. And if you don't beat down your bodily desires and enslave them, they will enslave you. So Paul says, I got to beat it down. I got to enslave my body. I got to master my body. What does this mean? Does Paul take a stick and whack himself on the back every time he messes up? He's beating his body? No. He's not talking about self-mutilation. He's talking about maintaining a mastery over one's appetites so as to not allow them to rule him so he can do what is right. You can probably imagine the person who has no mastery over their body. No ability to say no. Bodily cravings dominate them. They can't say no to a cookie. They can't wake up when their alarm goes off. They can't say no to just one more. They can't say no to certain forms of entertainment. They are dominated and ruled. And even if they were to say, oh, I don't want to do this anymore, their body says otherwise, and they don't have any ability to say no And if that's you, take heart. Christ is risen from the dead. He gives you the Holy Spirit. And you can begin, like Paul, to beat your body, to subdue it so that you are not ruled by the passions of the flesh. But you have to take responsibility. You've got to understand that there's spiritual elements to keeping your body in check. I was surprised when I, I first read Jerry Bridges' book on the pursuit of holiness that he had a whole section on bodily discipline. It should make sense. We believe that we are both souls and body put together, psychosomatic union. We are uh, not just totally separated. Your body does really matter. One of the things he said there, I'm going to read what he wrote because it stuck with me. He says, as we become lazy and soft in our bodies, we tend to become soft and lazy spiritually. When Paul talked about making his body his slave so that after preaching to others, he himself would not be disqualified, he was not thinking about physical disqualification, but spiritual. You catch that? Physical bodily training allowed him to not get spiritually disqualified. He goes on, he says, he knew that physical softness inevitably leads to spiritual softness. When the body is pampered and indulged, the instincts and passions of the body tend to get the upper hand and dominate our thoughts and actions. We tend to do not what we should do, but what we want to do as we follow the cravings of our sinful nature. Maybe this year is the year you begin thinking about how your body relates to your spirit, your spiritual life relates to the way you take care of your body. And you think about how you too, like Paul, can beat your body, make it a slave. There's unhealthy ways to do this. 
And so I would ask you, do this in community with other believers that want to make the same goals. Listen to each other's wisdom on this and help each other live lives in holiness, giving even your bodily impulses to the Lord. And so here's we get our ingredients for the race this year. Aspiration. Self-control. Perspective. Focus. And discipline. Write these down. Reflect on them together as a family and with your friends and other church members here. Think about maybe each one of those in its own category and ask how you're growing in the category this year. 2020, church, it was a hard year. But we don't know what's going to happen in 2021. It could, for all we know, be a harder year. But instead of complaining about how hard it is, here's what we're going to do. We're going to, for the glory of God, work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And we're going to run the race that God has put before us with self-control and perspective, doing all we can to live for His glory and not our own. And we're going to do it, church. We're going to do it together. Let's pray. So, Lord, we thank You again for the Gospel. I thank You that we don't have to do all these things to earn anything. Lord, but to know you better and to grow in communion with you, to experience the joy of walking with you day by day, of running the race as we ought. There's such a reward in that, and we long for that. You are our treasure. So Lord, banish any legalism from our hearts that's doing this as an effort to gain your approval. But because we have been made righteous with you through Christ, Lord, give us a love for you that compels us to live this way. That you might be glorified, that we might grow, that our church might be a faithful witness in our community for such a time as this. We pray these things in Jesus' name.